This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of the NIT Tournament, which is redundant. I know the T in NIT already stands for tournament. Anyway, this is the story of how that tournament got started. Of course, this takes us back all the way to the 1930s, when college basketball was the most popular form of the game. Professional basketball was still struggling in most every part of the country. This was still pre-NBA. It was also right in the middle of the Great Depression. The American economy was in the tank. People were struggling to find jobs and take care of themselves. Bread lines would sometimes snake around the block as people were hungry. But it was also a time when new fashions were taking over. Men used to put on three-piece suits and a straw hat just to go for a picnic. Women's dresses were getting sleeker and huge hats were all the rage. The Charleston was the latest dance craze. One of the highest earning stars in Hollywood was Charlie Champlin and his tramp character. He also had other box office stars like Clark Gable and Gene Harlow. If you have ever seen the movie The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio or the earlier version with Robert Redford, well, that is set in the 1930s. It was the Jazz Age. In the midst of all that, college basketball was gaining traction. It was growing leaps and bounds. And back then, New York City was considered the mecca of basketball, and many of the best teams in the country were located in the larger New York City area. And the king of New York basketball was a man by the name of Ned Irish. He ran Madison Square Garden and liked nothing more than to see a full house. Hosting college basketball games was a great way to sell out the garden. It was good money for him and the teams involved. As a quick side note, you might recognize the name Ned Irish because he later became the founding owner of the New York Knicks in 1946. But that was still 10 years in the future relative to our story today. So, let us zoom out for a moment. By the time the mid-1930s came along, the game of basketball was just over 40 years old. At this point in the history of the game, basketball was still very much a regional sport. In other words, both professional and college teams rarely left their region of the country. Midwest schools rarely played other schools outside the Midwest. The same for the Eastern schools, Southern schools, and the Western schools. The same thing was true of the professional leagues. Except for barnstorming teams like the Globetrotters, in the New York Renaissance, most teams stayed in their small part of the country. Now, what this meant was that very different styles of basketball developed. For example, in the East, the game was much slower and more methodical. And I'm not saying that is an insult, I'm just describing it matter-of-factly. The East Coast was slower, half-court game. Meanwhile, out on the West Coast, a faster-paced game developed that included more fast breaks and higher scoring. The Midwest emphasized defense. Of course, each region of the country thought that their style of basketball was the real basketball, and many New Yorkers would make fun of the West Coast style as some crazy fad. But as I mentioned before, the epicenter of college basketball was New York City, and specifically Madison Square Garden. The garden was known for hosting college basketball triple headers. The organizers would schedule six college teams to match up for three games to be played back to back to back. The fans got to see three games for a single ticket. These triple header Saturdays were incredibly popular and they would regularly sell out the garden during these affairs. 
At the same time, what we know today of university athletics is light years ahead of where they were in the 1930s. Back then, college had basketball teams, but it was the basketball equivalent of the Stone Age. There were few conferences, no official rankings, no TV, no sponsors, no shoe deals, no chartered flights to go to away games, no anything that resembles what Division I basketball looks like today. More importantly, there was no national championship tournament. There was no way for anyone to say that they were truly the best team in the country. The NCAA, which governs the highest level of university athletics in the United States, had yet to think of organizing a national championship tournament in any of their sports. Now, before I keep going, that was not technically true. The year before the NAIA National Championship Tournament was organized by none other than Dr. James Naismith himself, the inventor of the game. The NAIA stands for the National Association for Intercollegiate Athletics. This organization governs the lower levels of university athletics. The members of the NAIA are typically small private schools who emphasize academics over athletics. Very rarely do professional athletes come from the NAIA. So, the NAIA tournament gave Ned Irish and his partners the idea to do a national championship tournament for the top level of college basketball. So, organizers in New York decided at the end of the year, a tournament should be organized and that it would be a massive hit and a bunch of money could be made from ticket sales. They decided to create the National Invitation Tournament to be played at the end of the 1937-1938 season. They invited six schools that they felt were six of the best schools in the country. Now, back in the early days, the entire tournament was held in New York City. By playing in Madison Square Garden, they could pack in around 18,000 fans per game, which was far more than the schools could hold in their own gyms. Playing in the NIT was a good way of getting exposure for your school and your players by having them play in the garden in front of the New York fan base and the New York media. Because television was still not a thing, the only way for a team to become famous was to get written up in the newspaper, and lots of sports writers would be in attendance at Madison Square Garden. It was essentially a win-win situation for the organizers, the teams, the fans, the media, and anyone involved with the tournament. For that first tournament, the organizers invited Oklahoma A&M University, the University of Colorado, New York University for some local flavor, Temple University from Philadelphia, Bradley University from Illinois, and Long Island University. Now, Oklahoma A&M and Colorado had buys into the semifinals since they were the top two seeds. Now just to make a long story short, it was Temple and Colorado in the championship game. Temple won in a route 60-36. to 36. Temple was the official national champion. Since the NCAA did not exist yet, the NIT was the official national championship tournament, so Temple was considered the best team in the country for 1938. The tournament was absolutely a big hit. They sold out every game and there was lots of press coverage and bragging rights for Temple. Now, this is a good place to take a break and I will be right back with more of the history of the NIT tournament. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. 
At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold, you know, within reason. Garage sales, probably not. So go <laughs> ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story of the NIT. So, the first tournament in 1938 was an enormous hit with the fans, the teams, and the media. So, in 1939, the NCAA got its act together and put on a tournament of its own. Once they saw how much money was being made in New York with the NIT, they decided that they wanted in on the action. There were now two tournaments in 1939, the NIT and the NCAA. Where were teams going to go? The NCAA organized a tournament featuring eight teams. It was four teams from each of the two regions, East and West. The teams would play a two-round regional tournament and then the two regional champions would meet for the national championship. Now that actually sounds a lot like how they do it today. Four regional champions meet for the final four to determine the national championship. It is just that today, there are a lot more teams involved. However, the NIT was still able to secure the top teams as it was considered the more prestigious tournament, and Madison Square Garden had a lot to do with that prestige. In 1939, the NIT invited Bradley, Loyola of Chicago, St. John's, and Long Island, both from New York, New Mexico A&M, and Roanoke. Long Island won that year by defeating Loyola 44-32. The NCAA was able to secure second-tier teams to play. The eight teams were Brown, Ohio State, Villanova, Wake Forest, Oklahoma, Oregon, Texas, and Utah State. 
In the end, it was Oregon that walked away with the first NCAA championship. Now, even though starting in 1939, there were two tournaments, the NIT was considered the more prestigious tournament and the one that every team wanted to be a part of. Even the general basketball fan considered the NIT champion to be the true national championship. The NCAA tournament was considered some sort of consolation prize. For a few years, promoters tried to get the NCAA champion and the NIT champion to play each other a few days after their respective victories for some sort of a super championship. At the very least, it was a good way to sell tickets for a good basketball promoter. And quite a few times, the two teams agreed to it because the money was just too good to turn down. For a good 20 years, the NIT had the lead on the NCAA in terms of prestige and attention, but the NCAA was not going to give up. It was around the 1950s when the NCAA finally caught up and surpassed the NIT as the more prestigious tournament. The NCAA did this by expanding the number of teams that were invited, getting more schools and more fans interested in their tournament. I mean, just think about it for a moment. When the NCAA only invites eight schools, Pretty much only those eight schools and their fans care about the tournament's results. If your school is not in it, then it is less likely that you would buy a ticket or travel anywhere to see a game. But today, with 68 teams invited, that automatically gets 68 separate fan bases interested in the tournament. Inviting more teams is about building the audience for the sponsors. The NCAA also did a good job of securing larger venues and making the entire tournament more of a first-class event. So, as I mentioned, by the 1950s, the NCAA had become the more prestigious tournament. The NIT then became the consolation prize. Today, the NIT still draws a large television audience as they invite 32 teams that were not invited to the NCAA tournament. They go after 32 teams that have large fan bases and who travel well. They want schools which are likely to bring their fans to New York City for the final two rounds of the tournament. Madison Square Garden is still the host for the final four teams of the NIT. They also made a very good strategic move by playing their games on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays when the NCAA tournament is not playing. That helps make sure the basketball fans are able to tune in and see all of their games on TV without directly competing with the NCAA. So, when March rolls around every year and you are getting ready to watch the NIT tournament on TV, keep in mind that they had an incredible tradition going back to 1938 when the champion of the NIT was considered the true national champion. Now, I am glad that the NIT is still going strong and probably will for a very long time. It gives schools which were not able to make the NCAA tournament a second chance to extend their season and a chance to win a trophy. And it is also just plain fun. Well, that is the history of the NIT. Join us next time when we interview author Dave Zaram and we discuss his book, NBA 75, The Definitive History. It was a great conversation that you will not want to miss. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast, And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. <laughs>